Welcome to Something About Science, the podcast where three science editors and enthusiasts create a selection of the latest science stories that are making the news, breaking boundaries, or just a bit unusual. In this bonus episode, I head out to the Graphene Engineering and Innovation Centre in Manchester to chat with Watercycle Technologies co-founders Dr. Seb Looper and Dr. Ahmed Abdelkarim. Stay tuned for a sustainability-focused chat about how their lithium extraction technology hopes to revolutionise the UK's lithium supply chain. Nice and easy. Just could you introduce yourselves and tell us about your position at Watercycle? I am Ahmed Abdelkarim. I'm a CTO and co-founder of Watercycle. My background is uh, using membrane technology for water and wastewater treatment. I got pe- part of my PhD was here in Manchester from 2016. Since then, I met Seb Leeper and yeah, he told me about the company and I was really enthusiastic about doing environmental impact, a real environmental impact, not just publishing a paper or, or not just doing work. So that's why I joined Watercycle and make Watercycle move from just two-man band to now we have about 10 technical people are working besides the commercial and the scientific advisory board. I'm Seb Leeper. I'm the co-founder and CEO of Watercycle. So yeah, I started it during my PhD in chemical engineering. So I had a background in material science, which I did at Manchester, then went into chemical engineering again at Manchester, where I met Ahmed. Ahmed was visiting from the National Research Centre in Cairo, Egypt. We became friends and, and colleagues, published papers together, and then following a grant that I won in my first year, I then registered this this limited company and, and thought maybe we could take our research further than just uh, an academic sphere. And that's how the company started. We span out from the university in 2020 and they, we are a spin out from, from there. So they have a, a stake in the company too. It's quite nice though that you guys are like friends and then transitioned into this more kind of um, industrial partnership, I suppose. Do you think that's been almost part of your success as knowing each other and knowing that you have like the same views and the same kind of intentions like i would say so i think we both firstly started on on kind of the issue of water and and the issue around water scarcity so we both kind of connected on on that problem and started to understand the sort of extent of that uh, across different geographies both in developing countries but also in, in in wealthy countries i think when you start a company it can be very tough and having a co-founder with you, particularly one that's as stoic as, as Ahmed, is pretty essential, actually. And there have been moments where it's been very difficult and, and having someone there that you can trust is, is really key. So, yeah, it's been, it's been a much better journey with him. Yeah, um, I would say it's, uh, I'm very proud because, you know, we were in a position during this, I, I would say it's something like lake talk between me and Seb. We just had 1,000 pounds. March 2020, and he told me, Ahmad, you, you need to find another job. But yeah, I have been over the job here in Southampton, but I told him, no, I will, I will stay. I will make this succeed. And now we raised more than one million pounds from funding and 500k from pre-seed funding. And now we're looking for fundraise, fundraising seriously. So yeah, I'm feel, yeah, very proud with me and Seb what, what we achieved at the end. Yeah, we got down to £1,000 in the bank account. Yeah, <laughs> yeah, I remember that. I remember so those days. Came close, but we're, we're still here. No, that's lovely to hear. Um, so could you give us a bit of an overview of the different kind of mineral extraction approaches that 
are currently exist and the different challenges that this approach faces. Well, the market that we're focusing on as a company is, is lithium. Our technology is applicable to different minerals. We are starting to look at other minerals as well, but we focus on lithium because of the technological capability, the market need, and also the sustainability aspect of it. And they're really important aspects of the company. The IEA reckons that the International Energy Association, I think it is, re reckons that we need to increase the amount of lithium by a factor of 50 in the next 20 years. So really the markets that are driving that are electric vehicles predominantly, but also grid storage, battery packs for homes if they have solar panels, for example, and obviously devices like mobile phones and laptops and things. So really there is a, a, an undersupply of lithium. And there are two main ways that it's produced currently. One is from brines. So that's when it's actually the lithium is floating around in, in solution. And the other is hard rock, where you actually have to dig the rock and it's buried in the ground. You have to dig it out, process it. And both of them have their own problems. In the hard rock case, you have to heat the, the rock up to over a thousand degrees Celsius. You then dissolve it in concentrated sulfuric acid. And it uses huge amounts of electricity, of energy, and produces waste products. And also requires a lot of land because the stuff you're digging out is damaged land. Brine mining is, is predominantly done in, in South America. So what they call the lithium triangle, where mm -hmm. Bolivia, Argentina and Chile border each other. And they dig the water out of the ground and it's, it's underground in aquifers. And they basically have a series of evaporation ponds. And because it's very sunny and high altitude, the water evaporates away and gets more and more concentrated in lithium. But there are loads of other impurities in that water. And lithium is actually only a, a minor part of it. And so they, what they have to do is remove all those impurities by this successive evaporation and precipitation process. And what they're left with is, is lithium. The problem is, is that in that process, you lose about 70% of the lithium that was already in the water. So it's very, the re recovery is very low. This evaporation process is, is, it takes up to two years. So if, and if it rains, it, the production stops. So if you're trying to scale that process up, it, it doesn't, it doesn't work. What our process does, rather than removing the impurities and what you're left with is lithium, our process takes lithium out selectively and leaves the impurities in the water. And, and what that means then is you can return that water back underground because it's now increasingly well known that by extracting this salty water and letting it evaporate in, away into the sky is you actually have this knock-on effect of, of surrounding freshwater aquifers which deplete as they try to fill this void that you've created somewhere else. And so there are sort of local communities complaining about their wells running dry in these very arid regions. And it's directly because of this mining activity. So by returning the water back in the ground, that process doesn't happen. You extract the thing you need and nothing else. And so we're really trying to produce as benign a mining process as you can. Um, there's no such thing as a fully benign process, but I think what our process really represents is, is as close to a benign mining process as you can get. Yeah, and at least we are producing, by our technology can produce the lithium carbonate instead of producing just lithium solution and shipping it overseas to China. Because yeah, for UK, they, they, they don't have refinery. So we tackle this problem, just make everything the steps just in one in one on site on one place and keeping the water used 
as well and the, the energy requirements as minimal when compared to other even directly same extraction process or the normal technologies that used i suppose it's like you localize like your processing and the entire process it's a lot easier to say pinpoint areas of okay maybe we need to look at what the effect of this is or the sustainability or what impact it has on local communities it's a lot easier to to do that and it's also good to kind of localize things that's like you say reduce the dependency on like other countries or on shipping and things like that absolutely at the moment in in the uk we are 100 reliant on imports for lithium and yet we are one of the fastest growing markets for electric cars in the world. So we've got this big appetite for electric cars. We're wealthy enough to sort of buy them, but we have no lithium. Um, so we have to rely on, on imports. And that li- a lot of that lithium goes from South America out of the ground, as Ahmed said, shipped over to China and then processed and then sent back to Europe. So the air miles on that are crazy and the carbon emissions associated with it. And so, so by av- having more localized production, where they don't just produce a lithium concentrate, which is mostly water that you're shipping. We produce the carbonate, the actual lithium salt that goes directly into battery production. You save on, on the transport costs. But what's crazy is that in the UK, we're blessed with lithium. We have loads of lithium in the UK, in the southwest and in the northeast. So in Cornwall and Devon, and then in sort of Weirdale and that part of the world, we've got granite deposits, which have both hard rock deposits and and brine deposits. So we're working with with some of the UK leading companies in this space. We think there's a, a really big opportunity for us to have local domestic UK lithium that is then being extracted sustainably, turned into electric cars and being bought by consumers in the UK. And the other side of a business as well, which we, we, we shouldn't forget, which is critical to the lithium industry, is recycling of dead batteries. So we realized that at some point this century, there'll be more lithium coming from dead batteries than from the ground. Right? And we, we want that to be the case. We don't want to just keep on extracting stuff forever and ever and ever because we can't. It's a finite earth that we live on. And so we're working again with, with one of the UK's leading battery recycling companies to extract lithium from what they call black mass, which is this big mess of essentially getting a phone battery and blending it. So um, that's another key aspect of our business is to be at both ends of the lithium supply chain and demonstrate a full circular economy for, for a really critical mineral that is, without it, we, we basically can't hit net zero. Do you find that there are many others in the industry trying to take that dual position or that kind of almost like a holistic view of the entire process? Or do you think that's something that is quite unique to water cycle? As far as we're aware, we, we don't know of any, anyone else that's deliberately targeting both areas. There's obviously interest in, in the areas indivi- individually, but to me, it's, it's all connected. So, and, and that, that feeds into our ethos more generally when we talk about moving into non-lithium based minerals, rare earths, also po- environmental pollutants. It's not just about producing a waste product and disposing of it and forgetting about it is extracting the value value and bringing it back into circulation. And we're really fundamental to our company is, is this transition to the circular economy, which in my view is actually more fundamental than net zero. I think that every industry ultimately needs to be part of a circular economy. We need to change the language and talk about supply loops rather than supply chains. Because at the moment, our economy is based on digging stuff out of the ground, processing it, 
and then chucking it in the bin somewhere else or in the ocean. You know, <laughs> we can't we can't carry on that way. Yeah, I know the ocean is deep, but not that deep. <laughs> exactly. Yeah. So kind of talking a little bit more specifically about the technology that you guys have. So it's a patented membrane filtration technology to extract high value metals and minerals like lithium. Are you able to share kind of some of the key technical aspects of this process or I suppose what makes it unique in the industry? I mean, you've spoken a little bit about it before, but is there anything else you'd like to highlight? Yeah, I think, yeah, what's unique in the technology, we are not just dealing with lithium extraction from the brine. No, we we extracting this lithium, concentrating that, and then transforming into a product in in a containerized system. So most of the current technology are just producing lithium-rich solution and sending to China for being refineries. And our patent technology, it's not just about the membrane chemistry itself, it's about the membrane chemistry, the system design, the flow diagram, the process itself. And yeah, we covering all of these aspects in our process and our chemistry with, with patents. Normally with membrane processes, it's based on pressure and you have membranes with pore sizes that are well-defined and the size of the pores determines what can go through and what can't. Um, and so you have microfiltration, which might be able to get rid of microorganisms, nanofiltration, which can get, or ultrafiltration, which can get rid of viruses. And then you have reverse osmosis, which can get rid of salts and, and the very small things. Our process works in a different way. It's essentially a selective absorption process. So when the water contacts the, the membranes, lithium ions are attracted to a, a selectively adsorbent material that then allows the lithium to be captured, but all the other ions to be rejected. And so it's this reversible capture and release process that happens over and over and over again, at each point producing, taking in sort of complex water with lots of components and chucking out a simple solution, which is basically lithium and say a counter ion like chloride, which we then concentrate up. So as Ahmed said, we're, we realized early on that just focusing on one area of this overall process is not the way to go because there are decisions you can make in the first step which affect how you crystallize how you crystallize the salts at the next step and vice versa so we've now kind of filed or we're filing sort of how many nine eight, ten patents or something so we've recently kind of realize that there's lots of things, lots of areas of novelty that we're incorporating. So when we talk about what the core technology is, sometimes it's a bit of a long conversation. We have this bit and this bit, we have this bit. Yeah, but, but they're all really important. They all contribute to each other. And that's the, the general ethos. You know, there's no one solution that fits everything. We want to tailor it as we go through different minerals. You know, with the membranes, we think that we can still target different minerals by targeting the additive essentially in the membrane it's just finding that that additive and, and doing that process with the long-term goal of effect effectively having a, a universal system that regardless of what's in the water going in you can pick out the valuable things that you want to take out and byproduct of that process is the production of fresh water has the vision of the technology kind of changed a lot since when you first started or have you always kind of had a kind of very almost that specific um, direction that you've wanted to follow from from the beginning. I mean, for me, well, both of us, we we started on a looking at a technology that was about production of fresh water from concentrated brine. 
or seawater. And it was very much about water. So my PhD was really just thinking, okay, water, how do you make water more available for people? How do you reduce the cost of production? How do you make it more sustainable? One of the big problems with current water treatment technologies like reverse osmosis is that for every litre of water they treat, they produce 50% of that as brine. Usually it's more than that. Usually it's 70%. And that concentrated brine becomes an environmental pollutant that then is chucked back in the sea. So my research was on like, well, how do you deal with that? As I progressed through, I realized that there's much more of an opportunity there, not just seeing it as a resource that contains water, but as a resource that contains sodium chloride, which is, okay, quite cheap, but it's useful. Magnesium sulfate, which can be used as a fertilizer. Potassium chloride, which you can use again for fertilizers or in other industries. And suddenly seeing this water treatment problem as effectively a, a, a mining and resource extraction problem is now feeding into the sort of vision, the technology vision for the company, I would say. And you mentioned earlier that you've always, the sustainability aspect of it has always been a big driver for you. Has that been something that you've always wanted to incorporate into your, your kind of research and your professional career? Yeah, our vision is to, to make our process in a circular way more sustainable. Even the material we use for membrane, it's a green material the things we try to use always is it must be recycled and must be returned to it at the at end, end's life and even we can produce fresh water as a byproduct and other valuable byproducts to make the process much more sustainable and meet the goals for uh, ESG year, uh, limits so yeah no, it's quite interesting that hearing about all the different areas where you do make sure that you have some a, a rather kind of key sustainability characteristic or driver behind it. So earlier this year, you guys became a tier two partner of the Geek of the Graphene Engineering Innovation Centre. What support have you gained from this partnership? And how is Geek helping the company advance and develop? Yeah, well, I, I'm a bit of a um, an advocate of the Geek, aren't I? What did you call me? The Geek poster boy or something. It's... Um, Basically, I think we need thousands of geeks around the country because what it represents is, I mean, in China, I think they call them a laboratory. It's a lab slash factory hybrid. And it's about bringing, it's exactly what the mantra is. It's bringing research into the tough world of commercialization. And we just don't have enough of that infrastructure here. And so we're very privileged to be working here because we can we can scale things up. You know, we can, we, we have a lab, we still do bench top stuff in beakers, but then we can scale up and build a pr production line, which is what we're working on now. When we take investors round, we can show them that it's a real thing. It's not just a concept in a lab. There is this trajectory to scaling up and to de-risking it. And what's good about a lab tree is that you can, you can do this early stage scale up to de-risk, to iterate, to get some of the ideas sort of understand the challenges of, of, of commercial production and, and learn about those. So we did a trial quite a while ago now in the Geek using one of the membrane coating machines just to see if we could make membranes at a, a much bigger scale than what we could currently produce. And we, we used that trial. The Geek provided the staff support, the technical support to actually run that in a, in a safe way. And we produced material that we then went on to do a pilot trial with the water from from Cornish lithium and and it worked really well and that kind of 
initial validation that we could go to the next level of scale is is really key when you're trying to get investment because if you you know if you're investing money and you think mm, you know okay great great idea but can you actually go to that next scale there's all sorts of challenges with scaling up without that validation it's very hard to justify getting investment so you know the only problem with the geek is that there's not enough of them basically that's my view um and then beyond that you know the people that help us out the people that you yeah. can speak to in the corridor there's all sorts of peripheral help like yeah. being asked to do nice they interviews they are very helpful yeah yeah, yeah. And, uh, in technical stuff and legal the lab support and as well you know all sorts of legal stuff. support and uh, yeah outreach or pr mm. something like that with alan and for for example for grant writing they have one partner is with grant writing and we won with them with a grant with is a big consortium with more than 2 million pound and also you know just having conversations with other founders you know we had a really interesting discussion with someone just sort of sat opposite us about what they do and what and whether there's any overlaps and they're in agritech you know we do water can we talk and and you know that kind of it's a healthy environment yeah that kind of synergy is is fun and it's interesting and it opens your mind to different possibilities I spoke to Mark earlier from the the, com- the composites department, and he very much echoed much of what you're saying. Of that, it really is something that should be an institution. It should exist everywhere, and every you know, if possible, every university should have one to try and kind of like to bridge the gap between research and from industry. Because at the end of the day, it's great if you can do something and show that it works well, but you need that extra little bit of help and support to translate it from the small scale to actual kind of industry because at the end of the day you want to make something that can make a difference in in the real world and if you can't show that and like actually realistically show that then no one's gonna really kind of come and believe you and take an investment it's, in it. it's very true and, and actually i think they've talked about this before how it then feeds back into academia there's not just a again a linear thing if you learn lessons about how to scale up in this context in a building like this then you can feed that into your academic decisions and i think i developed a slight sort of skepticism towards the academic culture because a lot of phd's are, are not they're not in tune with with the real world they're not and i include myself in that massively they're not really looking at the factories that are building the thing that they're thinking they're going to make they're not understanding what the challenges are even from an economic perspective you know this nanomaterial how expensive is it how much do you need is it ever going to work things like that which is not to rain on the parade it's quite the reverse it's to make academia more effective and more satisfying for the academics who are doing it and i think when you're when you're doing your own company you you can't just publish your way out of it you have to ultimately produce something that works and and that is a burden of proof that is is sometimes higher than than the peer review process So I I really you know I think the University of Manchester as an academic institution is is incredibly powerful and will benefit from having the outputs from a building like this. So it's in every as you said it's in every university's interest and, and at a national level it will help bring in companies that are local to engage to learn how they can adopt this technology in their processes and will be better for our economy I think definitely. Yeah, especially we are, as we are trying to hit climate change problems and carbon emission, we need very well established lab like the labs here in the Geek to for deep tech startups to to do their research because we yeah we may rely on a little about software for climate change, but we need deep techs for and well prepared lab for this kind of experiments and bridging this gap. 
There's a huge disparity between funding that goes into deep tech. And by that, we mean, you know, hardcore engineering of actual machinery and physical goods and other sort of tech space, which is, you know, the next platform. And my view is that if we are to solve climate change, we have to redress that balance. Both are really important, of course, and software is doing huge, huge things to help us tackle climate change. But ultimately, you can't software your way out of a, a, an oil field. You know, you have to hardware your way out of that problem. And, and it's essential that more funding goes to it, that there are businesses that have this space to work safely. And this kind of lab space here is quite hard to come by in the country. And that's a risk for us. It's a risk for any new company coming out. So we need to just think about what's really required to tackle climate change and head in that direction. And we're happy to voice that opinion ourselves and, and try to push for that as well, because it's not obvious to people who aren't in our shoes. So we can't really blame people. In different positions and in different meetings, we're always highlighting we need labs, ready labs for this kind of experiments for to able to make the startups to work safely and to give them just the chance to to do environmental impact. We are always saying that and we are happy to do that. It's quite nice to be a voice, I suppose, of the I suppose the challenges that startups face and it's like you say, kind of making sure that you're in line and your is with your your ethos and of sustainability and climate change and also kind of it's like they say, oh, it's, it's great that all this kind of research and development's going on and creating all these different technologies and solutions to address the problems that we have. But, you know, what's the actual practical aspects of it? And, you know, is the support there? It's that we can create so many policies, but if we don't actually invest in the research and the development and create, it's like you say, create these spaces, these safe spaces to exactly. show that things can be done, it's not going to happen or it's, you know, it's going to be a long time before, before it can happen. And it's this idea of de-risking as well. You know, there's, there is a reason why there is this disparity in funding between deep tech and, and, and the rest. Partly it's to do with it being fashionable to invest in non-deep tech stuff. But it's also because, you know, there's more capital that you need to invest more capital in it, right? And, and there's high risk of failure. You know, there is, there is. And so any, doing anything possible to de-risk it and to minimize the chance of failure by institutions like the geek is critical because you want to show investors that your money is in safe hands if you be prepared to put more of it there because it's the only way we're going to get out of this mess so you know that's what motivates us is to try and succeed not just for our own sakes but to show the investment community that you should invest in other people as well which is key so talking a little bit more about the kind of partnerships and investment could you discuss this, your partnership with Cornish Lithium and um, what this kind of entails and how you kind of became involved with, with the company? Yeah, so we, we've been working with Cornish Lithium for a little while. Um, I can't remember how I got in touch. I might have just sent a cold email. Yeah, I actually so, can't remember. Do you know what? It's always sometimes like <laughs> just a simple email. It can get you so yeah. far. <laughs> well, they were our first real partners and this is before we'd even developed a lot of the technology. The reason we focused on lithium is because of my a research project that I, I was doing on, under a fellowship. And I said that this evaporation pond thing is crazy. At the very least, you could just capture some of the water. So before we were looking at these selective membranes, I was looking to apply my PhD research to capturing the water from these evaporation pond processes. That then brought me to the attention of lithi Cornish Lithium. 
and we reached out to them. They sent us some some water, and we did some some tests on on that water, and at the time used it to sort of see what the opportunities are with this new this new approach to the problem. And so we've actually been working together for for a while now, and we've got a good relationship there. We tried, I, I tried and failed many times to get Innovate funding. Um, there's like a yeah, right. and, then two, and then and then all of a sudden two come along at once. It's like buses. Yeah, exactly, <laughs> exactly. Um, so the trick is to get a consultant in to help you. <laughs> Who'd have thought? Who'd have thought? Yeah. Um, but then then you know we we got that and, and Cornish Lithium were very happy to support us in that. You know, and and now we 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 kicked that off officially in October. So we're just working as hard as we can to ultimately accelerate the commercialization of their business, their their resource. Um, because it's a great story that they've got. It's a great story that we've got. And what they've allowed us to do is pilot our technology at their facility in the middle of next year. And then that will hopefully hasten the, the move towards a commercial system. So there's a lot of work to do. You know, from an engineering perspective, it's challenging. And we're working with their engineers and with our engineers. But, um, you know, the, the prospects are, are really good with them. Um, and I think it can be a great success story for well, probably the first UK mine to open in maybe a hundred years or something. I don't know, maybe more. More than that. And first daily company from UK to able to extract lithium carbonate from UK, Brian. So it will be both win-win story for Cornish lithium and water cycle. I. Do you think that by kind of, I suppose, creating these lithium extraction hubs in the UK, do you think it would help? I suppose, decrease cost of lithium or at least make it a lot more available. You mentioned earlier that the UK is one of the fastest growing electric vehicle industries. Might that even like further create a boost for, for this industry and other industries as well? Yeah, ultimately, the view of the company is to bring the cost of lithium down. I mean, obviously, we, we'd benefit from it being high, but long, you know, ultimately, we're trying to make sure that lithium is in sufficient supply to tackle our carbon emissions in the various ways in which it does that. That's also why we're, we're interested in, in other minerals too, because th- th- there will be differences. And there, there are some real bottlenecks in other types of minerals that we're looking at as well that are critical to, to net zero. But, you know, we want lithium to be fundamentally sustainably produced. So it's not destroying huge swathes of land. It's not polluting the waterways. It's not consuming, you know, huge quantities of electricity. One of the nice things about the Cornish Lithium Project is the water comes out of the ground at about 70 degrees Celsius. And our process is thermally driven. So we use the energy already that Earth has provided to drive the process. And then when you return that water back underground, the delithiated water, it then gets hot again and that process continues. So, and again, once we get that lithium in circulation, we then have UK-based lithium battery recyclers to then keep it in circulation you know, rather than do what we do now is pay to get rid of it and pay to have it, you know, accumulate in a in a waste dump somewhere in East Asia. You know, it's crazy and it's it's not fair. So there's a bit of a trend towards resource nationalization. And and I'm not I'm not like waving the flag for that because I think trade is really important. But but there if you have it, why not use it? But we just need the engineering infrastructure. We need to have politicians who are prepared to invest in manufacturing. And I think, um, yeah, I think there's also a piece which will be about public engagement because, you know, there'll be a lot of scepticism about mining returning to Cornwall and rightly so, you know, 
But we need to, this is why we hope to show that our process, which we effectively will deliver in, in shipping containers that are a non-permanent and can be plonked in a field somewhere and, and removed and, and you wouldn't notice it was ever there. There's a small manhole where the borehole was and that's it. We need there to be public engagement, to be an excitement that it is possible to do some of this hitherto dirty industry, but in a clean way. Because it's, it's a bit of a double standard to want to buy electric cars as long as all the dirty stuff that happens is somewhere else. Yeah, I think it's one of the things that it's people almost forget that, you know, it's, electric cars are great and a lot of this is great. But in the realities of it, there's a, there are still a lot of problems and challenges. And it's like you can't just, you know, you can't fix everything by just shoving it under the rug and like hoping that no one talks about it. It's like you say at the end of the day, you know, you've got to create a process that is more environmentally friendly or climate conscious entirely and it looks at everything and is quite interesting to hear that is something you guys are quite passionate about as well kind of speaking about it so you mentioned earlier you're quite an advocate for the geek and it seems like it's giving you guys a lot of support do you think are you or rather are you hopeful that in the future there will be a lot more of these innovation centers that act as this um, translation like kind of translation from research to industry in the UK and even more I suppose globally where countries that normally isn't yeah I think it's critical to have yeah these centers because it it helps to de-risk technologies because it's 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 a big jump from bench to commercial you need always this kind of middle stage piloting or smaller or larger to be moved to a commercial scale so it will help a lot yeah here in UK or in yeah other places to build these innovation centers what they off- offer is this ability to fail fast in hardware and fail fast ment- mantra was very much about in software development you know you try you, you fail you figure out why you failed you quickly iterate it and improve it and then all of a sudden you've got a compelling product if we had to get our membranes manufactured in China or in Germany, which is pretty much what we have to do, which is why we're building our own production rig. How, how can we iterate fit quickly? We can't because it takes a week for them to be shipped over at best. So I think that having a network distributed across the country and also in other countries where these hubs can, how they work, whether they're joined to universities or whether they're publicly owned or what, I don't know, but it, it enables this much quicker iteration of, of design development which is again really important for as Ahmed said de-risking and, and getting to market and you know they do have some of these in Germany they do this well in China I don't know about the situation in the US but but here we really lack it we might be doing fairly well in in biosciences and in, in yeah, health sector. A lot of, a lot of investment yeah there. we're pretty strong at that and I think we can learn some of the lessons from from there and, and it involves partnering with other companies as well who have the facilities we like here, I think, some, some technologies like water treatment, membrane technologies and lithium extraction, very lack here. However, UK is the first European country for electric vehicle production and consumption. The thing is, we have such huge, such, such so good research sense. here. We have amazing research here. You know, in terms of IP production, we, we are amongst the best in the world, but we don't have that follow-on ability to go and produce. And there's reasons why, you know, there's cheaper labor abroad and things. But my view on manufacturing is that 
if you have a better, a bigger presence of manufacturing, it has this kind of spillover effect where just the presence of it and the conversations you have with people who work in that sector mean that you can innovate faster. And at the moment, we have fantastic universities producing great IP that then gets financed by foreign companies or foreign countries or just take, just taken and then commercialized elsewhere. And those membrane people that do succeed here, and there are some excellent membrane scientists in the UK, the manufacturing is done in China or elsewhere, where there's not necessarily the sustainability profile there that we, we should expect. So water cycle, you know, we, we want to be a manufacturer. We want to actually produce and we want to do it in a clean way and do it using the latest um, technology and do it in a cost-effective way as well. And I think, you know, we can, we can re-industrialize the North and not forget the, the fact that Manchester is where it all started. And, um, and we kind of, Manchester got us into this mess and we can get it can out. Get yeah. out. <laughs> get it out. <laughs> then maybe Manchester will be the place that lithium has been produced in its labs, like the atom has been splitted just here. So yeah, this is, this is our vision and our dream for water cycle. I think it's read about quite an interesting topic of having these super clusters of industries where, you know, rather than having one focus spread throughout a country or a location, you have these very kind of highly innovative centers in certain regions. And that is the place for it. And that's the place to go for it. And I think it's like you say, it's like having people present and having people around, even just in the same environment, whether it's in the geek or whether it's, you know, the broader geographical scale you know, like you're more likely to encounter others and to kind of like have those conversations that can really help boost technologies and help bring them into the public sphere and bring them into kind of um, the forefront of a lot of um, key sustainability policies and things. I think I think clusters are, are certainly important. You want to be sort of bumping into people in, in the corridor or going for coffee and, and hear, overhearing conversations that are interesting. They've got to be good to places to live and work. They don't want to be in the middle of a field somewhere on some horrible industrial estate. They want to be attracting young people who have got ideas and, and saying, look, this is a cool place to, to work. And in terms of the, the, the topic, I would, I would say, yes, certainly having a network of, of manufacturers in a particular space or innovators in a particular space is important. But diversity is also really key. As I said earlier, you know, we have conversations with someone in, in agri-tech and, you know, if they are in a different building to us, we'd never know about it. We'd never know that we could actually work with them. And a lot of breakthroughs could be had simply by having conversations with people from different backgrounds. Not even You don't even need to develop new technology. You just apply your technology here and suddenly it opens up a new space, a new possibility. And corridors, as Bill Gates said, or yeah. someone said, the most of ideas are just, okay, people are just talking in a corridor with, oh, yeah, I can do that. You can do that, so and then elaborate on amazing ideas. So, yeah, it's the same here. I think it's quite. I think it's quite funny. It's like they have these like, oh, let's do a networking event, and almost just the conversations in corridors are a lot more fruitful than like kind of having a network event where it's, you want it to be more natural and just part of daily life, really. Yeah, I think I think my my view on like being creative. I think you sort of you're most creative when you're not doing anything. And when you're busy working, it's when you're least creative. And so just having that space, having that time to just daydream and have a coffee with someone and, and just think, actually, yeah, that's, that's quite interesting. That's when the ideas come and they, that should be fostered. And that's, and that's what the geek can do. 
because we can we share kitchens and we walk past corridors and you know it creates that environment for us and it's diverse as well which is key so kind of looking more about the i suppose the lithium industry in in general you know it's great that you guys are developing um something that can really make it closely and sustainable but do you think that it will remain a dominant material do you think that lithium really is that is the direction that we're going in is that batteries and things will just be quite lithium focused. Yeah, we think lithium will will be critical at least for after 2040. Even there is other materials that are can be used for batteries but lithium is still very important and critical. It occupies a fairly special place in the periodic table. It's the third lightest element. So if you want cars which is a locomotive that you want a lightweight energy source. So people talk about sodium ion batteries as being a cheaper version of lithium ion batteries. And there might be promise for sodium in, in sort of grid storage, perhaps. But in terms of cars, I, I just don't really see it happening. And I think any invention that makes sodium ions batteries more compelling than current lithium ion batteries would apply to lithium ion batteries. And then you'd apply that invention and then suddenly it would supersede it. It's just based on the, the physical properties of lithium itself. But things might change. You know, we might have different types of batteries. If anything, like the current trends in battery technology is requiring more lithium, not less. So the move to solid state batteries have effectively no liquid electrolyte. They use a solid lithium-based electrolyte, which again would need more lithium. There's new chemistries which are based on either nickel, manganese, cobalt, so-called NMC batteries, or iron phosphate, or so lithium LFP batteries. And some people are arguing with, with LFP, it's, it's cheaper and they last longer, but they don't perform as well. But they're dominating in China. And the reason they're dominating in China is because a lot of people buying cars in China have never owned a car before. So they buy a car with an LFP battery that is, has got a 150-mile range, which we in our country would scoff at, and they think, this is great. Why do I need more? Something like 99% of journeys are under 100 miles, and yet we in Europe need 250-mile range. Yeah, just for that one time. That just, just, yeah. just that one time. Yeah. Maybe, yeah. Just maybe. I mean, to be fair, it takes a long time to get to Cornwall. So, <laughs> But actually, you get more, if there is a lithium shortage, which it looks like there there is now and there will be, which is what's driving up the price, then there's an argument to say we should go for an, sort of LFP-type chemistries that uh, provide more miles per kilogram of lithium that you need. So it will, it will change. As I said, I think it's prudent for us to not not just be looking at lithium because there are just so many other opportunities and other minerals that are also really important. So if it does happen and if if someone invents a hoverboard that's powered by pure willpower, then um, you know we'll, we'll still have stuff to do. I think, <laughs> but we'll see. Yeah. Also, I think what reflects lithium importance is now it's not just lithium extracted from brine or hard rock. It's also extracted from seawater. And when you hear about that, it's strange because seawater lithium level is just 0.2 milligram per liter, which is maybe 100 fold less than in Cornish lithium or, or in other places. So this means we need every resource that contains lithium to extract lithium for it, no matter what the cost now, because by developing technologies, it will cost down by time, but the most important thing to extract this lithium out. 
from sea or hard rock. Exactly. It's kind of connecting us back to where we started with seawater. And we're working with some some pretty big people in seawater, uh, seawater desalination. And these countries and these companies are really saying, look, we need to have fresh water to power industries, to provide for people. To the point where today, something like 100 million cubic meters of water, fresh water, is produced from desalination a day. And actually, as I said, that's more than that is produced as brine. So 140 million cubic meters is brine every day. So even though there's a very small concentration of lithium, the volumes are so huge that it actually is actually something worth looking at. And we've done some tests on, on it and we, we can extract lithium from seawater. And so we're, we're very much with this view of, again, brine production in, in the desalination industry is an environmental pollutant. Can we mine that and turn it into value? And that would solve a big problem in, in the current, it would solve a, a water scarcity problem. So it's kind of coming back to where we started, which is really nice. That's why we, we came across with yeah, governmental conversation about, because this country has a problem in brine. So they contacted us and we did this kind of formal conversation about we can deploy our technology, not only about treating the brine, but also producing fresh water and recover, recover minerals. So instead of, because even dumping just brine, it cost maybe $10 per cubic meter, which is, which is a lot. Yeah. So instead of just dumping it, yeah, can extract valuable minerals, fresh water, solve the brine issue. So it's multipotent technology, I would say. Would you say, do you think in the future you'll kind of continue on this path of, you know, financing the ex uh, lithium extraction, but also exploring how else your technology could be used and what other applications it could be used in? And even, I suppose, kind of like to help tackle like water scarcity is a massive problem in a lot of kind of lower economically developed countries and being able to kind of like create a process to help with that. Is that more kind of on the long term on the cards for the company? Yeah, absolutely. I think the, the sort of trajectory is really lithium extraction, then battery recycling, and then kind of mining from seawater and production of, of drinking water. And really, we want to be in a good position where we can then and, and do the technology development to develop small scale water treatment systems that can be dispatched and solar powered and effectively be there for communities that really struggle with, with water. It's, it's a kind of a recycling problem, you know, because there are certain parts of the world at certain times a year just don't get any water. So any, any water that is used has to be recovered. We're very wasteful here. Like the, I say the cheapest way for you to recycle or to save 30% of your water consumption is to stand in the shower with a bucket at your feet. And when you, when you're out of the shower, you collect the bucket and you use the bucket to flush the loo. That will save you 30% of your water consumption. Obviously, that's not a particularly trendy way. It's also maybe a bit unsafe if you stack it over, over a bucket. But, you know, we're actually in, in this country very, very wasteful with water and we can do little things to change that. In other countries, there needs to be more suitable technological solutions to that. And, you know, I think we're, we're very keen to, to do that and deploy it to these places when we're ready and when, when the technology is ready. And where would you recommend that, say, our readers go to kind of learn more about both you guys, but also, you know, topics like you've discussed of water consumption and the realities of lithium batteries and things like that. 
Yeah, well, I'll, I'll, we're updating a website. You can always go to watercycletechnologies.com. We also have a LinkedIn page that you're welcome to, to have a look at. If you want to learn more, I guess just Google direct lithium extraction because there's a lot of, um, a lot of press about it. And there's, there's lots of companies now joining the party basically across the, across the pond and, and elsewhere. You know, there's a danger that we become overly cynical about electric cars. I don't think that electric cars are a panacea. They're not going to alone solve the problems. Yeah. You know, there are environmental challenges with the productions of lithium and other mi minerals. There's humanitarian problems with the production of things like cobalt, which currently go in batteries, which are serious. But there's this danger that by doing that and trying to suppress the technology without a viable alternative, and hydrogen is not a viable alternative for cars. It is for other things, but it's not for cars. We run the risk of potentially quashing a technology that can actually do a huge amount of good. We haven't talked about pollution. I mean, just for pollution alone, which kills 6 million people a year, electric cars should be everywhere. And, and fossil fuel cars should be banned in 2025 rather than 2030, in my, in my view. And, and so we're kind of Again, we want to address some of these challenges. We want to give people a sense that the production of these new technologies and these new minerals can be done in a way that doesn't just further the problems. And I think it is possible as long as you, you think about the problem, you think about how the, how the technology can, can work and, and crucially you go up and scale it and demonstrate it. Yeah, we figure out how our technology can be part of solution that can impact the environment. And yeah, securing lithium demands for UK and the world is, yeah, it's, it's our target at the end. Brilliant. Well, you've been very lovely and answered all of my questions that I have today. Is there anything else you'd like to kind of add in that you'd like to cover or anything you'd like to go back over? I guess I was just, I would just say to any young listeners that we need as many people on these problems as possible. It's not something that will happen on its own. And there's lots of work to do and we can do a very small part of that, but we really encourage people to, and it's not just about getting into STEM subjects, although that's always good. You know, we were having conversation with someone who's developing a biodegradable tile for, for indoor like bathrooms and, and she's an artist, you know, so there are people who are coming from different fields who are bringing their brains, their creativity. Ultimately, science is a creative process, just like making art is. And I think just look for places where you can apply that passion because we see from the young, the younger people that they are incredibly passionate about solving these challenges and just doing what you can to, to find places that you can go and work. And, and if they can't find places that you can go and work, create something where you can do it because we can, we can solve the problem. You know, I'm an optimist ultimately. There's a lot of work to do, but by the end of this century, we'll be carbon neutral and we'll be in a much more clean environment and a safer environment. So. Let's say the middle of the century, not the end of the century. But it's not going to happen on its own. If you enjoyed listening, please think about leaving a review on your podcast provider, sharing this episode on social media, or with friends, family and colleagues who might enjoy it as well. This episode is brought to you by Azo Network. We'll be back soon with more discussions about science.